Right, amen, amen. You get maybe seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist um, to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so uh, whether you're with us here in person, we're, we're glad you're here. Whether you're with us online, glad you decided to gather with us. And, and what we're going to be doing today is just continuing the series that we've been in uh, since the beginning of, of the year called Endure, Finding Courage in Weakness as we look at the book of 2 Corinthians. And so uh, if you haven't grabbed a discipleship guide, I encourage you to grab one of those out in the foyer. Uh, it'll help you to kind of follow along in this series, whether it's here on Sunday mornings or whether it's in our small groups that meet throughout the week. And so today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 23 through chapter 2 verses 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's where we're going to be. We're going to break it up into three uh, different sections. But what I wanted to do is just kind of ask you uh, to be thinking about as we turn there, how are you isolated or why are you isolated? And maybe you're like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm isolated because I'm following orders, right? Like, you know, this whole past year has been isolation. But see, even for those of us who've grown up here in the Northwest, we know that this is not exactly the most welcoming region of the country. And I've talked with a lot of you who've, who've um, come from other parts of the country, whether it's for, for work or military or whatever, and you're like... It, it's cold here, and it's dark, and, you, and I'm like, yeah, I know the weather, and you're like, no, the people, and, and, and right, so that's just kind of who we are, and so then you add in um, the, the things that we've been through in the last almost 12 months now, uh, and, and isolation just seems to grow, and so Maybe you are finding it difficult to form new relationships. Maybe you've found it incredibly difficult to maintain relationships with, with family, um, you know, maybe family that you love, maybe the family that, you know, not so much, right? You know, uh, maybe it's hard to make new friendships or just maintain the ones you have. And then there's other things that keep us isolated, as division, societal upheaval, uh, all the political things that have happened and cultural things that have happened in the past year, uh, maybe you're like, oh, that was my neighbor, or like, oh, that was that person I knew at church, or that was that, that friend of mine that I had. Oh, they believe that? Oh, they voted for them? Oh, I don't, I don't want anything to, to, to do with that. And maybe you're like, you know, hey, I, I look around at what's going on in our community or in our state, and you're like, I'm out. I just want to move out to the woods. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't want my kids to talk to anybody else's kids. You know, I, I don't want to be, go on social media. You just want to disconnect. And so I think there's so many things that are keeping us isolated. And then as we've struggled to really have right in-person interactions, right? We've, we've been saying for a couple months now that Sunday mornings are the most normal day of the week for us here because we're actually get to gather in some regards that when all of our connection with people becomes online, people become profiles to debate rather than people to listen to or friends or family or neighbors to engage with. And so we become more isolated and independent rather than reliant and connected or interdependent. And, and there's just a big problem with this. We are just not built or meant to be alone or isolated. 
We are not meant to be disconnected. And so um, isolation actually reduces our ability to endure when things are difficult. If you're on a long hike, if you're on a a long journey, uh, if you are trying to accomplish something big, if you're trying to make it through something difficult, we we, we love the the army of one and I'm an individual soldier and and, and, I'm going to just kind of make it through. But but our experience just says that's not the case. Because when we're alone, it's easy to, to drop back. It's easy to fall down. It's easy to get discouraged. And so we're made for community. Um, and, and yet, there's also just the aspect that like none of us are perfect. And so when we're in community, we have opportunities to, to be harmed. We have opportunities to, to harm others. And so we begin to think that the most courageous thing we can do is to go alone, and we start to make our circles smaller, and we start to limit our ability for community to help shape us. And at the same time, we're also limiting our ability to impact others. In the very same way you were not meant to be alone, others around you were also not meant to be alone. And so we need one another. There's a, um, uh, this idea, right, that, that if we uh, just go it alone, that maybe I'll just be more effective. Um, if you're a parent of small kids and, and you have any memory left, you remember how easy it was to leave the house before the little people showed up, right? Remember you'd wake up, you'd take a shower, eat something, get dressed, walk out the door, maybe even be five minutes early. And then the little people show up. And now you're like, five minutes early, that's Right, because it's just other people can kind of slow us down in some regards, except we need them. There's this African proverb that goes this way, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think that's part of, there's, there's truth there in terms of how God has wired us. And so if we're going to be a flourishing community, uh, it, it actually is going to take some courage. And I, and I say courage because um, isolation gets easier and easier the longer you do it. And yet it's less and less effective to actually bring joy, uh, to actually help us endure difficulty. And at the same time, family, community, that's in the church, that's out of the church, that's neighborhood, that's the actual community we're engaged in the world, like that's difficult. And yet, it's necessary, and, and, and I hope maybe by the end of this, we'll see that maybe it's even worth it. And so today, we're going to look at three big ideas around uh, what a courageous community looks like uh, that is formed and strengthened and fostered by the gospel, that br- kind of builds a healthy culture to give us the courage to endure, uh, even through the midst of, of difficulty. And so the, the three parts kind of break out into courageous fellowship, courageous forgiveness, and courageous friendship. And so if you would, turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 2, I do that every week, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through uh, 2, 4, and then we'll stop and talk about it. This is God's word. Paul writing to this church in Corinth for the, for the we'll see the third time at second letter here. Okay, here we go. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming into Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm or endure in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. 
For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of the heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so here, here's Paul writing to this church um, in Corinth. They've been separated for a while. The church has really struggled to endure because if it, we said if you read 1 Corinthians, you will see just the depth and breadth of sin and challenges that that church has. It is, it is a model church, but just a model of dysfunction. And so here's Paul, uh, and, and they kind of of being overly pragmatic and, and, and not being reliable and not showing up when he said he was going to show up. And, and here's Paul, and he's starting off this section of the letter with a clear defense of why he didn't show up when they thought he was going to. And, and it kind of underscores this concept right away that relationships are difficult. I mean, like, you're like, yeah, we, we know, but like, no, they, they're not easy. And you're like, no, no I, I get along with everybody. Well, may, maybe if you, if you don't have a depth of relationship or if there's not stakes involved, like my relationship with the baristas at Starbucks is great because I smile, they smile. I mean, we don't know. We just think we're smiling because of the masks, right? Um, and, and, and like I pay for the coffee and they give me the coffee. It's a very, very simple relationship. But when you talk about marriage, you talk about family, Work relationships, church relationships, they are incredibly difficult at times and it takes courage to show up for others in challenging circumstances if we see them in need or especially in the case of Paul and the Corinthians, like there's some things not right over there. And when I show up or if I start to engage, I'm going to have to make some decisions on how I navigate some of the dysfunction uh, that's there. And so um, uh, Paul has very courageous desires where he's driven by a desire for greater depth of relationship with this church, for greater health in the community, to strengthen one another with, I'll say it this way, mutually beneficial relationships. Right? That takes courage. It means both people have to show up. Both people have to be present, ready to engage with one another. And so Paul kind of defends his purpose right away, and he says kind of the, the phrase, as God is my witness. He's like, I, I had a good reason for not coming back to Corinth. And he says it's not pragmatic, but it's actually pastoral. It's not just, oh, my schedule didn't work out or, uh, you know, like when you don't want to go to a function or an event, I mean, like a long time ago when functions and events happened, um, right? And you're like, you kind of like, you don't make something up, but you're like, oh, hey, this thing didn't work out. Like, okay, that's fine. And you kind of feel that sense of relief. Like it wasn't a, a scheduling issue for Paul. It was a systemic issue of trying to navigate these difficult relationships that he had with this church. So he's actually being incredibly pastoral. He says, I had pure desires. God's my witness. Let me tell you why I didn't really come. It's not because I don't care about you, church. It's because I deeply care about our relationship and for you as a church. And so he says, the reason I didn't come was to spare you more pain. 
to give space and time for, for some of the tensions that had happened between Paul and the church to, to heal, for some of the broken relationships to kind of be eased. And so he's actually being incredibly intentional with how he engages with this church and in, in these relationships, uh, knowing that there's something kind of amiss. And so Paul has a, a deep desire for real community. He says, I'm not lording over you. I'm not domineering. He's like, I just want to be really direct with you to, to help, help shape the culture for a purpose. And so he, he's saying, hey, I love this church with great affection, but he loves them as a servant leader who's more concerned with their long-term endurance and joy than short-term happiness. And so if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see Paul doesn't hesitate to be very direct to calling out the issues that he knows are going to end up leading to difficulty, to division, to, to pain, to even destruction. And so his desires that they would endure, to, to stand firm, it says, to remain steadfast. But it's not just endure like, good, because you'll make it. But he's like, no, I, I want you to endure because I want there to be more joy. More joy for you, more joy for the community, more joy for the leadership, more joy in the mission. Like the outworking of, uh, the, the courageous step of entering into fellowship is, yeah, there's going to be difficulty, but the trade-off for the difficulty is hopefully it actually leads to joy. Like there's no, like nobody, no guy goes up to a gal as, as they begin their relationship and says, you know, I want to get married and my hope is that we endure, like, without joy, right? Like, I just hope we make it. Like, no, like, the, the purpose of the relationship is that somehow, through this mystery of how God works, that we are actually better together than apart. However, that doesn't work if better together just means more sin, more brokenness, more division. And so it actually takes courage to show up to engage with these difficult things. And so Paul's shown up before, right? He wrote that letter. Um, there's a second letter that he's written to the church that was lost to antiquity, but we know it's very intense, very direct. Uh, we know as well, it says here in the text that Paul had a very painful visit. Like he showed up and it wasn't like potluck Sunday and, and cinnamon rolls and all that stuff. It was like, there's issues that need to be addressed. And now he's getting ready for his third visit back. And before he comes back, he, he wants to make sure that if he's going to be courageous enough to, to show up, to be present, to remain with this church, that the church itself is going to also be processing through what does a healthy culture look like and, and where do they need to change and where do they need to grow. And so Paul wants this relationship restored. When, when we have broken relationships, there is something in us that just yearns for them to be fixed. This says, this is off, this is not right, and we just, we want it to be better. And so, so it's hard to have joy when things are unsettled relationally, and, and, and part of that is just the impact of sin, where we say that sin separates us from God, separates us from ourselves and shame, but also separates us from each other. And so there's been sin here. And so Paul's saying, yeah, God is my witness. I didn't show up, but I'm, I'm gonna show up. 
And so that takes, I think, some courageous vulnerability. Showing up, being present, takes courage. Like, isn't it interesting how many obstacles there are just to simply gather? And, and, and this has increased dramatically, right, over the last year, where there's societal and governmental challenges that we've had to navigate too. But even before that, and like, isn't it always interesting that like Sunday morning's the morning where there's like the most bickering among the kids? Sunday morning's the morning where mom and dad aren't getting along. That, that Sunday morning's the morning where you're like, oh, it's rainy and dark and nasty. Like, I just, I'm just going to stay inside and not connect with anybody. Or um, if you ever led a small group, or you ever hosted a small group at your house, isn't it interesting that like Tuesday afternoon is like, how did our house ever get this messy? Like this dirty, this awful. And then like, why is it that like, you know, as you're cleaning up your house, your kids are like, oh, let's scatter Legos everywhere. Like, hey, I want to bake something with, you know, flour. Like there are just more and more obstacles, it seems, to actually gather. It makes it tough to show up. And that's the like, just the kind of like stuff that's in the air. But what about the stuff that's in our souls? What I mean by that is how hard is it to show up when there was people that were supposed to be there to support you and to encourage you and you were to encourage them and instead it's those people that were actually a source of betrayal and suffering. That makes it really hard to show up. It makes it really difficult to say, I'm going to be there. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying like, hey, um, when I was there for the painful visit and I, I talked about this serious, difficult situation that was going on, kind of thought y'all would have my back and you didn't. And Paul could have just, man, he could have ghosted them. He could have checked out. He could be like, you know what? I want to go visit the Thessalonians, man. They got their doctrine down. They don't sing much. They don't raise their hands. Um, you know, they're kind of cold people. Man, they, they know their Bible well. They love one another. Like, I'm just going to go visit the Thessalonians. Maybe the Philippians, right? I'll go visit them. You know, they, they, they're, they're kind of patriotic and, and a bunch of veterans. Like, they're always fun guys to hang out with. Like, if I were Paul, I'd just be like, see you, Corinth. That's not what he does. He shows up in wise and meaningful ways. And, and, and I want to be clear, and we'll talk about it more in a, in a moment, um, but there's a place for sensible boundaries. And there's even a place and time where, where, where separation is actually necessary. But for Paul, he's decided to actually show up in meaningful ways. And he's leading with his weakness, leading with his vulnerability. And so he's, he's saying, hey, I got, I got tears. I'm crying for you guys. And it's like, you know, is this manipulation? Is, is Paul weak? No. Paul says, like, I'm not telling you that I'm sad so that you'll change your behavior. I just want you to know how deep my emotions are, my affections are for this church. And I've shed tears over it. They're genuine because they come from a desire for there to be more health, more joy. And so he's hoping that in some sense, yeah, that it maybe softens and disarms the situation, but he's not hoping for some response from them. He just wants to share the depth of emotions with him. And he says it's through affliction and anguish. And, and 
there are times when we have gone through a lot of affliction and a lot of anguish that it just leads us to apathy. Like as a, as a self-defense mechanism. And like I said, we'll talk boundaries, we'll, we'll talk some of those things as well, but for Paul, he says, no, actually the fact that I endured through this anguish and, and, and through this affliction isn't a, a sign of apathy, but is actually a sign of my abundant love for you, the Corinthians, for the church, for the community, that going through the pain was worth it for the purpose of preserving the community and the mission and, and, and that, that there's hopefully joy on the other side of it. And that's what he says he wants, right? That's what he says the outcome is. The outcome is, is joy. And so abundant love drives us to relationships with others to seek reconciliation when it's broken. And like I said, better together is only true when what has been broken is actually fixed. Otherwise, it ain't better together. And so, last part of this section, Paul just leads with courageous clarity. Um, we've kind of adopted some language from uh, Emotionally Healthy Leadership by Pete Scazzaro that just simply says at certain points that clarity is kindness, meaning to be clear about the nature of a situation, to be clear about how people are doing in their job, to be clear about where things are uh, in a relationship is, is important. Uh, and so Paul's not, he doesn't want to rebuke them again. He doesn't want to cause undue harm, but, but he's got both clarity and compassion. He, he cares about their feelings, but he's also willing to courageously be clear about what's not working, and what's not broken. And so Paul's, Paul's been clear, right? Wrote 1 Corinthians, wrote a tough letter we don't have, showed up for a painful visit, ready to show up again and to be clear about what's broken for the reward of a healthier community of grace. And so it takes something deep to risk engaging when there's a clear rift. When, like we, would, we so much would rather, I think, disengage um, here in the Northwest especially, right, we'd much rather just kind of like, like go along to get along. And it robs us of depths of real relationship. And it keeps us actually, I think at some points, in, in, in prisons of superficiality where things look good on the surface but underneath is turmoil and pain. And so we like the idea of being a peacekeeper, meaning like, let's just not engage in conflict. Rather than being a peacemaker, what acknowledges the truth that there's brokenness and sin and conflict that needs to be dealt with if there's gonna be a moving on to something that's flourishing and, and life-giving and joyful in the future. And so, some of us aren't the go-along to get along, right? Some of us are like, no, I just, I just like telling it how it is. I like people on cable news or talk radio that tell it like it is, right? Speak the truth. In love, I mean, in love, yeah, but I mean the truth, right? And so like, you know, I just, I like pe telling people how things are, you know, you just, you take me or leave me, you know, however I am, like, right? You've seen this on social media, right? Like how quickly people just be like, yeah, if you're not for me, you unfriend me now. It's like, man, I just kind of want to unfriend just for that. It's like, right? Like, oh my gosh, I would love to have coffee with you or, or not ever. And so, I think that, in some regards, too, can be a defense mechanism that we put up. Because if I just put myself out there and you don't like me, well, then that's on you. And so, 
we sometimes like to tell it like it is, and I'm an open book and all these things. Uh, and so we speak the truth, but it's not in love, so it causes more pain. And this is what's amazing, right? Um, if you've read the New Testament and you've read the writings of, of the Apostle Paul, I don't think at any point you would accuse him of being soft uh, or being less than clear or less than bold. I mean, the guy's been beaten up in a bunch of towns. Like, he, he's just endured. He's gone through shipwrecks, all sorts of different things, right? So he's not a coward by any stretch. And yet, here, he leads with his weakness. And while he's not afraid to be clear, he says, you know what? I didn't show up because I thought if I showed up, it'd make things worse. You know, I didn't send that email because I thought if I sent that email, it might make things worse. I didn't comment on that post because I thought if I commented on that post, it might make things worse. I didn't post that meme. I mean, unless it's a Bernie meme. Everyone, everybody, we can all be united around the Bernie memes, right? We're all good with that? This is an endorsement of Bernie, okay? But just the meme, right? Unity. Best thing that's brought us together as a country in months. But Paul is wise enough to know when to be quiet, too. And I think there's times where we're like, courage looks like me stepping into the situation, telling it like it is, like trying to engage. I think there's other times where courage is actually being quiet or silent. And we know what's true, and we know what's right, and we know what's wrong with them. And if I could just call that out, maybe they'd see it. But Paul says, no, I didn't show up. And I stayed quiet and I stayed back because I didn't want to cause more pain. And so he makes a trade-off for a moment and a time to rather than win, to be more loving. Rather than speak, to actually be silent. And I think that takes courage because uh, that's also like giving up, surrendering in a way and saying, maybe I'm not going to be the Holy Spirit for someone else. Particularly if we're in a place of conflict, they might not want to hear from me. So I'm just going to step back and I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let God and the Holy Spirit work on them. I mean, from 1 Corinthians, from the church was planted to 1 Corinthians, the letter, to now, I mean, we're talking years have passed. That's really hard, especially when you know something's just off. And so... It can be very difficult, right? Because, right, sometimes you gotta speak. And other times, you gotta be quiet. Like, when we talk here as a culture, as a, the church of gospel plus safety plus time means a, a church culture where anywhere it can grow. Like, wouldn't you love it if it was just an answer like, hey, I feel something, I should speak. Or I hear something wrong, I should engage. Like, yeah, there's times for that. And there's times to be quiet. And so that requires actual discernment, wisdom, Maybe even connecting with other people and, and seeking, how should I engage with this? What's best? I mean, I, it would be hilarious to think what my actual like, Facebook feed would, would look like if I actually posted all the things I wanted to, to say and all the opinions I have and ideas I have, right? But part of showing up 
is also knowing when to step back and to provide space and realize that maybe our contributions aren't always going to be as healing as possible. But I, I do want you to ask yourself, when has someone shown up for you? When has someone had the courage to walk with you through something difficult? Maybe even had the courage to help challenge you where you needed to be challenged. Where did somebody have the wisdom to know when to just listen? When when do you and where do you need to engage with somebody? Where do you need to lovingly challenge? Where do you, for the purposes of, of healing and joy, need to actually be patient, maybe even quiet? Where do you need wisdom? So, Paul said, hey, I didn't show up. There's a good reason why. But it's, it's not enough for us just to, to, to show up, to engage. We, we've, when there's actually been sin and brokenness in a church community um, or in our individual relationships or when we've been hurt or when we've been abused, it actually requires forgiveness. That's where Paul goes on these next verses here. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says this. Now, if anyone's caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, for he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. If showing up, if engaging in fellowship takes courage, I think forgiveness takes even more courage. Because when there's sin and there's wrong and there's hurt, forgiveness is not our first response, is it? No, we want justice, right? We want to, uh, we want to see um, uh, things undone. We want, to, we want to see things get better. And so Paul's being clear, pain's been caused. Sin hurts. Sin does separate. In this case, Paul's addressing something the entire church knew about that, that caused a painful visit, that caused this, this difficult, intense letter that he had before. You can read 1 Corinthians and there's some really, really intense situations in there. Take your pick which one this might be. Or maybe it's something that we haven't even heard about, don't even know about. But regardless, it's not just like, oh, so-and-so didn't say hi to me in the hallway. Or or like, it's not just like, ah, man, that, that guy was less than gracious in that situation. Like, it is an intense situation that has happened. And so, It separates us and it helps to break down community. And so when we have sin in community, the sorrow can be overwhelming. And part of how, as a gospel community, uh, we actually move on from those things is to actually express and engage in forgiveness. And in doing so, Paul's not minimizing the sin, right? He's, He's calling it out. He's being clear about it, but he's trying to lead with mercy and grace. See, the sin that happened actually led to real consequences, It says for this person in particular, there was punishment. Now, that might have meant excommunication. That might have meant some other sanctions. But the reality was sin hurts and there were consequences. 
And something's been broken. And so there's been this grievous sin that caused, caused pain for many in the community and, and consequences have been met out. And, and what's interesting about that is that the consequences even are not necessarily justice, right? We're Jesus people. We're gospel people. Justice is not something that we get to accomplish. Justice for all of us in our sin is judgment and wrath. Jesus has bared our judgment for us on the cross. Jesus has faced justice for us. So even when there's sin and brokenness in a church community, it's not about finding justice or retribution, but it's about recognizing that sin hurts has real consequences and the desire is reconciliation. And so this, this discipline that's happened isn't for retribution, it's for repentance and if possible, restoration. And I say if possible because I think in, in Gosh, we could do a series on this, and there's just so much more to go deeper into this, but I think we have wrongly married up the concepts of forgiveness and reconciliation and believe that they're the same thing. So we struggle with the concept of forgiveness because we're not ready for, or it's not always wise, to actually have reconciliation or restoration of relationships, when you've been through harm, when you've been through abuse, when you've been through a toxic situation, the answer, like I said, might not always be better together. And yet, while we need to decouple forgiveness and reconciliation or restoration, one of these, particularly forgiveness, is what we're all called to do. And one of these, reconciliation or restoration, should always be desired. But forgiveness is the one that This one over here requires both parties. And I say that because um, Paul here says, forgive them and restore them. And you're like, what? So does that mean we should always do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, no, there, there's sin there, they actually need to be disciplined and, and they can't be part of the fellowship anymore because they're causing more pain or they might think that, 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 that they're not engaging in brokenness or sin. So what's the difference? Like when, when, when is it like, hey, there needs to be a separation, there needs to be distance, and when is there, we need to press in and we need to reconcile. The difference is the heart and actions and repentance of the person who was in sin. That's, that's the shift. That's the lever that says forgiveness, yes, always. Reconciliation and restoration if there's repentance. This one takes humility, and for this party here, it takes grace and mercy. This one we always do, and this one we always hope for. And long for. Knowing this one we get to cooperate with God with, we get to cooperate with forgiveness, this one's out of our hands. And so, repentance is required for there to be restoration. Seeking restoration when there's sin takes humility, like we said, from one and mercy for the other. And so, uh, I was uh, talking with another pastor friend of mine 
um, over the Christmas break, and he's been going through a difficult season and a difficult situation, and he knows that, that I've been through some difficult seasons and situations as well, and he's like, hey, Chris, when does the healing start? And as he described the situation to me and, and all the steps they were going through and, and trying to reconcile, but, but there's still so much hurt, there's, there's, there's new offenses happening, I said, well, it's really hard to heal when you're still being wounded. So you can't start healing until the wounding stops. And so that requires repentance. And that might even require time and space. Like we said, for Paul and the Corinthians, we're talking about over the space of years. Good luck seeking restoration and reconciliation and coming up, I want to come and give you a big hug when the, when the guy's like still stabbing you in the stomach, right? Like, mm. we're going to go ahead and just stay over here. You can't heal when you're still being wounded. And so forgiveness isn't always restoration. The difference is in the humility and repentance of the one who's been in sin. And so that doesn't mean, like, right, if, if you grew up in the church, maybe you heard wrongly, like, forgive and forget. The only time it talks about sin being forgotten in the Bible is when God forgets our sin in eternity. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. And so I want to be really clear Forgiveness is not license to stay in situations where there's abuse. Forgiveness doesn't mean always pressing in when maybe what God is, is saying is there's going to be a shift and a change. And so forgiveness isn't easy, but, but it is necessary, right? And I want us to see that it's worth it as well. And so very quickly, Five reasons that we need to forgive from these verses here. It says this. Number one, we forgive to comfort. When there's sin and there's brokenness, we want to condemn and we want justice. And when we sin, we can become, when, when we're the one who sinned, right? Any, like, no, yeah, 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 with justice for them. But when we realize that we have sin and we have brokenness and we bring those into relationships, for us, we, we can come to places of sorrow and guilt. And, and the word here for overwhelmed means to be devoured. Right? He said we, we need to comfort that guy because he's being devoured, eaten up inside. Or another way the word translates is swallowed up like a wave that capsizes over us in a ship. Like, like hey, the, the guy's being eaten up inside. The guy's being devoured and consumed and, and you want to condemn and you want to judge, but no, you need to forgive and not condemn, but actually bring comfort. And Paul says, hey, it's time to call off the dogs. He says, the guy's been through enough. And we'll see as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, sorry, 2 Corinthians 7 in a few weeks, that he, he actually, he's actually repented with godly grief. He's gone through what he needs to go through. He doesn't need to be defined by that. And so comfort can begin to be experienced when being consumed by condemnation ends. You can begin to have comfort when you stop being consumed by condemnation. And so we should want, like when we know the crushing weight of sin, we should want to release others from that condemnation. Number two, we forgive to reaffirm, he says. Right, when there's sin, everything in us just wants to reject. When we are the ones who sin, everything in us just wants to retreat. And Paul says, no, it's no longer time because of reconciliation to reject or retreat. It's time to reaffirm and re-engage. See, when we have sin and shame, we don't want to engage, right? Ever like 
read off something on a text message or, or, or you've been the one who's said something wrong in a conversation or whatever and then you're like, I don't really want to see that person again. <laughs> and instead, he actually says, it's on you, Corinthians. Like, this guy's been through enough. Like, like he might not be the one that's going to show up because he knows how much pain was caused. It might be on you. Now that you know he's repentant, now that you know he's humble, to be the one who welcomes back, to, to, to reaffirm, to be proactive in reaffirming. And so he's like, you're not just declaring your tolerance, but you're actually reaffirming your affection and your fellowship, he says. All right, number three, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Like, I want us to know that forgiveness isn't something that we just do on our own. Forgiveness is something that we've already received. See, if you actually meditate and ask yourself, like, how have I experienced forgiveness? When have I received forgiveness? It is so much easier to give what you've already received. Our, our vertical forgiveness, meaning like God's forgiven us from our sin in Christ. Like if you're in Christ, your sins are, are forgiven. So that relationship with God is one of forgiveness. It becomes so much easier. Not easy, easier to actually extend forgiveness to others who may have hurt or harmed you when you can remember how much you've been forgiven. Paul tells the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verse 32 of Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We can forgive when we remember that we've been forgiven. All right, number four, keep this going. We forgive to battle our bitterness. C.S. Lewis, I'll, I'll probably get it wrong, but he says it this way, um, we love the idea of forgiveness until we have something to forgive. See, bitterness is easy. Forgiveness is difficult. Remaining hurt is easy. And so um, when we lack forgiveness, early on we think, yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm not going to forgive them. If I forgive them, the hook. And we think that somehow maybe we're harming them by not forgiving them. But it's very quickly from where like the, the hurt we felt from sin gets shifted into bitterness that begins to consume us. And at a certain point, our lack of forgiveness isn't doing anything to them. But what it's doing to us is robbing us of joy and of life and of freedom. And so I think forgiveness takes courage when bitterness can seem comfortable but it's also necessary to help us overcome shame and to, to help restore fellowship. And so um, when we don't forgive, at a certain point, we just begin harming ourselves. And so rather than releasing someone, we hold on to bitterness, it begins to consume us. And, and, I, and I really do believe um, that bitterness is a bit of a battle. Like, like it always wants a beachhead on your continent. Like it's always kind of there looming. And so forgiveness might not be a one-time like, all right, I've forgiven them. <sighs> Never had to have pain again. Yeah, right, because like 
the way trauma works, the way sin works, the way pain works, like, like you might be triggered at another time. You might have another experience that reminds you of that, and you might need to forgive that person all over again. Not because they've sinned against you again, but to bite back, to, to fight back, and to push back. Bitterness is desire to grab a hold of you. And so, at certain points, we just have to be proactive um, in overcoming bitterness. And lastly, number five says this, we forgive to resist Satan's design for disunity. Paul knows that like, yeah, sin separates, but he also knows there's a real spiritual enemy that seeks to devour, that seeks to divide, to destroy life-giving community from the inside. And God's word just says that perfect love casts out fear. That like part of, like the weapon that we have against Satan's design for your life, for this church, for community, is forgiveness. To not allow offenses and bitterness and brokenness to consume us. And, and, and so it's a weapon against condemnation. It's a weapon against division. And, and I will just tell you, it is not an easy weapon to use. Because sin does hurt. Because relationships are difficult. Because community is really challenging. And so, like I said, it's going to be a continual journey that, that I think is going to just have to constantly be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want to be clear. We don't open ourselves up to abuse. Like, God has not called you to remain in things that are just so broken that it only causes more pain. So we don't open ourselves up to abuse, but we also don't close ourselves off to, to the potential for freedom, for the potential of flourishing that comes from forgiveness. And so I just, I want you to ask yourself, who do you need to forgive? What do you need to let go of? And this one might be harder. Where do you need to repent and seek forgiveness from someone else that you've hurt? See, it's, it takes courage, it takes courage to, to be present, to be in fellowship. It takes courage to forgive. But I want us to know as we look at these last verses that I absolutely believe it's worth it. And here's why. Last two verses. Let's look at them. We'll close it out. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this. When I came to Troyes to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And you're like, that's a weird verse to close on. Right? This kind of, kind of, is it, isn't that like a throwaway verse? Isn't that kind of like, like some of the details of like just trying to move the story along, move the narrative along? No, I, I believe that all of these verses are in here intentionally. As Paul's talking about like courageously engaging, being silent when he needs to be silent, being bold when he needs to be bold, forgiving where forgiveness and sin has, has, has happened and needs to be, that he's also saying, hey, by the way, it's so easy to talk about community as a theory, 
to talk about forgiveness as a hypothetical. And Paul now is talking about his buddy Titus. And he wants us to know that real community actually includes real people. Like, it's not some theory. It's not some like, cool, I heard a sermon about how we love one another and, and we had all things in common and they shared. And yeah, like, no, it's real, actual people. He's kind of, in a sense, demystifying it. And in this last section, I just call courageous friendship because community is not a good idea with hypothetical people. It's real individuals who become friends and family. And so for, for Paul, he had this awesome opportunity to help plant a church, to, to preach over here. And it's like, hey, God opened this door. And I went there and I started working. And like, I mean, there's nothing that we could see here in verse 12 that says, hey, a door's open for me in the Lord? Well, if God opened the door, you better run. You better go. If there's an opportunity, you better take it. Except... While Paul is committed to preach and, and he plants churches, right? He pastors people. At a certain point, Paul's not just a professional looking for the next career move. He's a person who's been called to love and serve with other people. Like, not to, not to minimize it, Paul needs his people. Right, y'all know your people? Like, oh, they're my people. Right, there's something about actual relationships with people that you realize we've actually been brought together because there's aspects of, of one another we enjoy. That, that without real community, without these friendships, it says his soul is unsettled. Verse 13, my spirit was not at rest. So hold the phone. You're doing what God told you to do. You're preaching the good news of the gospel. People are getting saved. It is clear that this is an opportunity from the Lord, but something's off because you don't have friends? Yes, we need friends. You need friends. Like we can't just be isolated. I don't mean Facebook friends. Those don't count at all. I don't even know half the people on there. The other half, I'm not even sure I want to know. We need friends where we can be ourselves, where, where we show up and we know we're not perfect and they know we're not perfect and we're cool with that. It doesn't mean we let one another walk into sin or you know, shipwreck our lives or things of that nature, but like part of a gospel community of grace and mercy and real friendships is showing up and somebody else being imperfect, us knowing they're imperfect and us still accepting them. And that that ends up being mutual. That, they, that we don't see one another as projects to fix, but friends to enjoy. Paul needs friends. Good friendships settles our souls. When you're with your people and you just kind of let down and you laugh, and you cry, and they're there for you, and you're there for them, and you enjoy doing some things together. Like, guys, that's the outcome of a good, flourishing gospel community. I, I hope you have friends here. I hope you have friends outside of here. I hope you have friends across the country. I hope you have friends across the street. We are made for relationship. We need friendship. 
because it settles our souls, but it takes work when we see other people's imperfections and we accept them and it takes work for them to accept us. Experiencing enduring friendship from others can give us rest because we become freed from our need to perform and we just get to be. I think it was about five years ago I was with a group of other pastors and we were working on kind of some life planning stuff and they had us like fill out like what areas of your life are great and what areas of your life aren't great. You know, whether it's finances or work or hobbies or family and all that stuff. And I rated friendship as the lowest five years ago. And it was like, you know, and you're supposed to develop plans and I was like, yeah, I don't really know like as a, you know, middle-aged guy, like how do you make more friends? Like I'm not like, like I know I'm at Starbucks, but you can't go there anymore. Um, but like, it's not like, I'm like, hey, you wanna be my friend? Hey, you wanna be my friend? Hey, you wanna hang out? Right? And by God's grace, I can, I can with just great joy say that the last five years, God has blessed me with some of the best friendships of my entire life while also going through some of the most difficult seasons of my entire life. And so friends are, are born for adversity, but they're also there to enjoy. See, we have friends with one another and, and who know us with our sins and imperfection and they still pursue us. And as we close, like I want us to know that we get to be friends with one another because if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, like you already have the best friend in the universe. Like Jesus Christ knows all of your sin, all of your brokenness, everything you bring to the table that might even make others go, mm. and he says, I'll call you friend, and I'll show up for you, and I'll forgive you of your sins. In fact, I'll, I'll even sacrifice for your sins. When he went to the cross, he secured freedom for his friends. He paid for their sin. When he resurrected, he gave new life to his friends. As we have a, a perfect, perfect best friend, a true friend in Jesus Christ. Dane Orland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. He says, he does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed, right? Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Stop being isolated. Start showing up. Start engaging. Risk forgiveness. Pursue and be friends with others who are constantly encouraging you and where you're encouraging them to trust Jesus. Let's pray.